Hey there, welcome to Sam R. I'm Sam, your host, and this is my thought experience. Okay, guys, uh, welcome back to the second component of this podcast series where I am looking at and unpacking the latest interim report uh, for New South Wales Curriculum Review. Uh, The report is entitled Nurturing Wonder and and Igniting Passion, um, Designing Schools for the Future. If you haven't already uh, listened to my first, the first episode in this series, um, do yourself a favor, go back and have a listen. Um, I kind of explain the process that I'm going through here and uh, my reasons for doing so. Um, All right, without any further ado, for all of you people who are too busy to read this, which I completely understand by the way, uh, this is for your benefit. I'd also like to point out that today's, uh, or this particular episode rather, um, is probably very beneficial for you if you're a parent. Um, There are parts of what I'm about to talk about, including um, the context, uh, of schools, like the evolution of schooling, um, the, the, the way we have begun to um, look at the changing world around us, and also uh, the way we, we look at how our understanding of learning in general has evolved, um, which I think are going to be quite insightful for parents who are essentially either thinking about starting their kids off at school soon, or maybe parents who will be thinking about sending their kids to school uh, within this decade. So I would encourage all of those people, uh, teachers and parents and anyone interested in education reform to tune into this episode. And as I said just before, um, go back and um, listen to episode one in this sequence. Um, and, um, and yeah. We'll go from here. All right, let's go. Alrighty, this is the context of schools. Although there have been several major reviews of schooling arrangements and the school curriculum in New South Wales over recent decades, many aspects of current arrangements had their origins in the recommendations of the Wyndham Committee Report of 1957. The Wyndham recommendations included the automatic transition of all students from primary to secondary school, the provision of a core curriculum with increasing electives across the first four years of secondary school, the possibility of students undertaking courses leading to a higher school certificate or HSC examination, the type and content of which should be such as to make it acceptable as a test for university matriculation, and the establishment of an independent board with authority for the development of HSC courses, the conduct of HSC examinations, and the issuing of certificates. All right, it goes on to say, The world in which schools now operate would be largely unrecognisable to members of the Wyndham Committee. It would barely be recognisable to members of the Carrick Committee 
who reported on their review of New South Wales schooling in 1989. Advances in globalisation, communication and access to information and fundamental changes in Australian society and many of its institutions, institutions have changed forever the context in which schools work, the challenges and opportunities they face and the students who attend them. This review commences with a brief look at some aspects of the environment in which New South Wales schools now operate and possible implications for the school curriculum. So I think uh, what I really like about that sort of little overview of the context before we dig into the evolution of schooling is um, the, the upfront admission that the world in which schools now operate would be largely unrecognisable to these people uh, on, on the committees that who, you know, who were responsible for previous reforms. And I think, um, I think that's a very uh, progressive statement to make. And I think if we can all just come, uh, come around and admit that, um, then we're going to be a lot better... Uh, moving forward and having this type of conversation because there's no point in at least in my mind in pretending that um schools have not changed and well in pretending that the world has not changed because the uh the world has changed and it's and it's quite dramatic um but what's really interesting is this this um alludes to a committee report that was done all the way back in 1957 um, and then also uh, further down the track to uh, members of the Carrick Committee who reported on their review of New South Wales schooling in 1989. So we're going back a fair way here. Okay, the evolution of schooling. The review has adopted a long-term perspective. From the outset, the task has been interpreted not so much as reviewing and suggesting changes to current syllabuses or making recommendations about operational matters for which NESA already has well-established decision-making processes as developing possible design features for a future school curriculum. The focus of the re review has been on understanding perceived strengths and weaknesses of the current curriculum, exploring community aspirations for schooling in the future, and proposing broad brush, brush features of a curriculum that could well require a decade to plan and establish. This is not to say that immediate changes may not be required to existing syllabuses, but the primary goal of the review has been to develop a long-term vision for the curriculum in New South Wales. In adopting this approach, the review has recognised that existing curriculum arrangements are the result of decisions made over many decades. An attempt has been made to look forward, but also backward to understand the intentions and motivations that produce the current curriculum. This has been instructive in revealing recurring themes and issues and in understanding past curriculum reform efforts, both successful and unsuccessful. Examples of reoccurring themes can be found in the ways in which the various phases of schooling have evolved in New South Wales. Throughout the history of the state, there has 
been steadily growing demand for high levels of education as more of the population has sought access first to primary schooling, then lower secondary schooling, then senior secondary schooling, then tertiary education. The expansion of these educational phases has followed broadly similar patterns. At first, only a small percentage of the age cohort has participated in any given phase. These students are drawn mainly from a social and or academic elite, with entry being restricted either to families who can afford it or to students who meet entry requirements, usually through an, an entrance examination. This select group of students forms a core of individuals being prepared for professional and leadership positions in society, typically through a university education. A relatively small number of schools deliver a curriculum to these students, which is strongly academic in focus. Then, as student demand for the phase grows, the government becomes increasingly involved in meeting this growing demand. This includes attempting to cater for the non-academic students now wishing to participate in the phase, possibly by introducing separate institutions, courses or qualifications for students not expected to continue beyond the phase. Government fees, if they existed, are abolished and the entrance examination to the phase is used not so much to control entry as to allocate students to institutions and courses. An exit qualification from the phase is introduced by government, possibly replacing an earlier university provider qualification. <coughs> Excuse me. Finally, as almost the entire age cohort participates in the phase, student participation is made compulsory. If an entrance examination to the phase existed, possibly an exit examination from the prior phase, its, its significance is now greatly reduced and is eventually abolished, and eventually is abolished. With near universal participation, earlier differentiation is replaced by attempts to identify a common core of learning for the entire student cohort, and separate qualifications emerged into a common qualification for all students. And as an increasing percentage of students proceed to the next educational phase, the exit credential decreases in significance as a selection mechanism and it too eventually may be removed. These broadly similar steps in the evolution of schooling in New South Wales can be seen in the brief summary provided in the following table. An advantage of long-term perspective of this kind is that it is a reminder that today's schooling arrangements, syllabuses, examinations and qualifications exist at a point in history and are a part of an evolutionary process. Schools of the past were not organised as they are today. For hundreds of years in much of the world, children were educated in one-teacher village schools. One-teacher schools also were common across New South Wales during the 19th century. Today's model of schooling, based on classes of children of the same age, all being taught the same curriculum, became predominant during the 20th century. And it is unlikely that schools of the future will be organised as they are today, particularly as technologies play an increasing role in individualising learning. 
A long-term perspective also allows current arrangements in particular phases of schooling to be seen in the light of changes that occurred in earlier phases. For example, current concerns about the best ways to cater for non-academic students in the senior school have their parallel in early, early 20th century concerns in the junior secondary school. The response at the time was to introduce different curricula sometimes leading to different qualifications. At one time, there was a commercial certificate for non-academic junior secondary students that sat alongside and was eventually merged with the mainstream intermediate certificate. As most of the age cohort has participated in a phase of school and progressed to the next, the trend has been to abandon attempts to provide differentiated arrangements and to provide all students with a largely common curriculum. With a long-term perspective, it, is also, it also becomes clear that current differences in curriculum, teaching and assessment arrangements in the different phases of school often have resulted from the progressive addition of new phases as they were acquired. Today's students, rather than experiencing learning as a continuous and seamless process, often negotiate transitions and cope with between phase differences that exist largely for historical reasons. So reflecting on that little section there of the evolution of schooling, one thing that I really like that's pointed out is the way that schools have evolved. <laughs> And uh, it's funny that that happens to be the title, but um, they they really kind of break it down for uh, the the reader to understand that schools uh, did not start as they are now. They started off in a much simpler form, and just like uh, organisms in our environment, as they evolve and adapt to uh, the needs and the environments around them, they become more and more complex. And uh, as new challenges come up, new pieces are put in place to deal with um, the, the, the issues of the time. So, uh, you know, looking at the ways um, different examinations and different certificates were in place at different points in the, the scope of schooling is really interesting to contemplate. Um, you know, they talked about this concept of the, as population grows um, and more and more people are involved in this activity of schooling, um, it becomes a much more uh, acceptable thing to make what was once a, uh, you know, an activity that only a few people took part in, it now becomes easier to say, you know what, because so many people are involved now, we're just gonna make this uh, common and mainstream and everyone's gonna be involved. So um, yes, a very good little uh, way to package how schools evolved through the different phases. And uh, we're about to have a look at uh, a table that um, is kind of packages a brief summary of the evolution of schooling in a, in a nice way. So there's, there's lots of dates and uh, percentages that are about to come up, but I think it's quite interesting um, to take note of how these dates and percentages sit alongside this concept of 
the school as an organism evolving over time and how it meets the challenges of, of the day. Okay, so what I'm looking at here is obviously something you cannot see, but um, just in a nutshell, it, it is a simple table divided into four sections. Uh, the four sections being primary, junior secondary, senior secondary. Oh, my apologies, it's just those three. So we're looking at this, the sort of three major phases of, um, of school uh, before we get to sort of university. <clears throat> All right, so in the first part of the table, uh, we have primary. A small percentage of New South Wales children attended primary school in the early years of the colony. Participation rates grew throughout the 19th century. The concept of secondary education did not really exist until the 20th century. The Public Instruction Act of 1880 introduced compulsory free education and made school education the responsibility of a government department. <clears throat> Primary schooling effectively became universal following the Act of 1880 when participation rates increased by 25%. Examinations at the end of this phase, variously named the Qualifying Certificate Examination, the High School Entrance Examination and Primary Final Examination were eventually abolished. And then we move on to the second part of this table <clears throat> and the next phase, which is junior secondary. A small percentage of students attended secondary schools in the early 20th century. A qualifying certificate examination for entry was introduced in 1911, replaced by the high school entrance examination in 1923. By 1920, of the 46,000 students who completed primary school, 4,000 began secondary school. A, re a review was initiated in 1933 into how junior secondary education could meet the needs of all students. By 1935, 60% of students began secondary school, with the majority being considered non-academic. The intermediate certificate at the end of this phase was broadened and a general activities curriculum was introduced in 1939 for less academic students. With almost all students progressing from primary to secondary school, the high school entrance examination was abolished in 1943. By 1945, 97% of students participated in junior secondary education. An alternative curriculum was introduced for less academic students in 1946, but the Wyndham Report of 1957 recommended a core of subjects for all junior secondary students, automatic transition from primary to secondary school, and the introduction of the school certificate based on external examination. By 2011, with most students continuing to the senior secondary school, the school certificate was discontinued. And now for the third part of this table, senior secondary. 
A small but growing percentage of students participated in senior secondary schooling by the mid-20th century following completion of the intermediate certificate and in preparation for the leaving certificate. By 1956, of the 50,000 students who had commenced secondary school, 8,000 were enrolled in Year 12. The Wyndham Committee recommended the introduction of the Higher School Certificate in 1957. By 1995, 66% of the 76,000 students who had taken the Year 10 School Certificate undertook the Higher School Certificate in Year 12. In that year, a review was initiated into the HSC, the McGaw Re Review. The review recommended more advanced courses for more able students, the introduction of technical and further education, or TAFE, subjects into the HSC, and the clearer separation of the HSC from university selection processes. By 2018, the apparent retention rate from year seven to year 12 had increased to 77%, and almost 77,000 students were studying one or more high, higher school certificate courses. A national goal was set to lift the year 12 or equivalent participa participation rate to 90% by 2020. Following the Bradley review of 2008, there was significant growth in the proportion of year 12 students continuing to tertiary study with the expectation that at least 40% of Australian 25 to 34 year olds would hold at least, at least a bachelor's degree by 2025. So I think again there, it does, it does a pretty good job of giving us a look at how since the early days or early years of the actual New South Wales colony, uh, how schools have grown in size and as they've grown in size, various uh, examinations or entrance tests uh, were put in place. But uh, as increases in the population of schools rose, um, they were eventually abolished and it became more uh acceptable that more and more people were going to be here so we'll just decide to make many of these uh schooling aspects either compulsory or even unnecessary because they were only put in place in the first place to um basically bolster the system to a degree that would mean um that society can sort of push forward into i guess more academic institutions like university and, and things like that. Um, interesting anyway. And I, I think if you're a parent listening to this, <clears throat> again, it's good to kind of just simply look at this and consider this as an evolution of schools. Um, my experience talking to parents about how schools are structured is that, um, you know, often we forget that schools are obviously very, very complex places, but they weren't always that way. Um, and simultaneously, it's important to remember that schools and the exams that we have in place are put there for a reason. Um, and whilst, you know, we can get caught up in the dramas of 
why particular exams and tests may seem like you know rubbish or just stressful for students and families there are reasons why they're put there and um, it's just important to remember that a changing world the past three decades have seen substantial change in the context in which schools work Developments in technology have given students entirely new ways of communicating and interacting, as well as ready access to vast amounts of globally generated information. The nature of workplaces has changed irreversibly, along with the knowledge, skills and attributes most workplaces now require. And there have been profound changes in Australian society and its institutions. These and other developments have impacted the day-to-day -day work of schools and increased the challenges of engaging and supporting young people and preparing them for their futures. For today's students, the world is less certain and less secure than it was for their parents' and grandparents' generations. They are living in a period of rapid, ongoing change and growing social fragmentation. Through the media, including social media, they're exposed directly to the details of global terrorism and violence. They are witnessing increasing public cynicism about traditional institutions, including religious and political institutions and their leaders. The erosion of traditional values, growing questions of growing questioning of truth and the emergence of fake news. Many are concerned about environmental sustainability, social inequalities and the future and large numbers of today's students are exposed to realities of substance abuse, easy access to age-inappropriate online content, and cyberbullying. Parental anxiety and the addictive nature of technology have led many young people to become more isolated, more anxious, and less social. These developments present schools with enormous challenges. Dealing with mental health issues is now an essential part of the work of most schools. Building resilience in children and young people is a priority, as is promoting optimism, self-confidence and positive mindsets. With the decline of other institutions, sometimes including families, that once played a lead role in inculcating values and developing character, schools have found it increasingly necessary to give priority to students' social and emotional development and often to their physical and mental safety, health and well-being. This raises a question about the scope of the school curriculum. For many teachers, the curriculum currently is defined by a set of syllabus documents and the associated outcomes they are expected to teach and students are expected to learn. The syllabus-driven conception of curriculum has been adopted at the senior secondary level and extended through the years of school. Schools' efforts to address mental health issues build student resilience, inculcate values and develop character, often are described as outside and additional to this formal school curriculum, and sometimes are considered to impinge on the time available for delivering the curriculum. But in the 21st century, should the curriculum of schools explicitly include and give greater priority to social, ethical, emotional and physical development and health of every student and recognise these as school-wide and school-long priorities? And if so, what role, if any, 
should a curriculum development authority play in supporting schools in these aspects of their work. Rapid changes are also occurring in workplaces and to occupations that once provided destinations for school leavers. A growing proportion of routine, low-skilled jobs are being replaced by machines or, low, or lost to low-wage economies. This is likely to accelerate with ongoing advances in robotics, artificial intelligence and machine learning. By some estimates, up to 40% of existing occupations will be automated over the next two decades. These developments have profound implications for students and schools. In particular, it is becoming increasingly unacceptable for significant proportions of students to leave school with low levels of academic attainment. The OECD's program for international student assessment revealed steady growth in the proportion of New South Wales 15 year olds with unacceptably low levels of reading literacy, mathematical literacy and scientific literacy between 2000 and 2015. But even minimally acceptable levels of attainment in these areas are likely to be inadequate for meaningful employment in the knowledge economies of the future. There is an urgent need to lift the bar for every student. Students with low levels of school attainment will be particularly vulnerable in an environment with which youth unemployment and underemployment remain serious issues. Nearly a third of Australian young people are currently unemployed or underemployed and many struggle, struggle to find employment in the fields in which they were trained. In 2016, only a third of graduates of vocational education and training programs were employed in the field of their, of training, of their field of training. Students with low levels of school attainment are likely to be disproportionately disadvantaged in a more casualised workforce with lower levels of job security, increased part-time and freelance work, and multiple job and career changes. Already, 30% of Australian workers are participating in flexible working arrangements involving multiple, involving multiple jobs or employers. At the same time, there are growing shortages in the areas of science, technology, engineering and mathematics, or STEM. The number of professional, scientific and technical jobs is predicted to increase substantially over the next decade, together with jobs in healthcare. And with continuing advances in digital technologies, skills in the use of information and communication technologies will be important for all students with advanced skills becoming increasingly in demand. Despite this growing demand, average levels of school attainment in mathematics and science have been in steady decline over recent decades, as have the proportions of New South Wales students choosing to study more challenging STEM subjects in the senior years of school. Changes in workplace places and the knowledge and skills they require have clear implications for schools and the school curriculum. Higher levels of attainment will be required across the board if most students are to be engaged productively in the knowledge and service-based workforces of the future. This will include higher average levels of attainment in reading literacy, mathematical literacy and scientific literacy. Students will Students also will require skills to work in modern workplaces 
and changing and uncertain environments, including transferable skills in communicating, collaborating, critical thinking, problem solving, digital literacy, project management, creativity and innovation. And in an increasingly globalized world, students will require knowledge and skills to participate as active citizens and to work across national borders, including high levels of intercultural understanding. So that little section uh, entitled A Changing World is is quite self-explanatory. I think anyone who reads that will probably agree with most of the things that are going uh, on in, in, in that paragraph. And perhaps if you uh, haven't heard about the changing world around you, um, then you may be living under a rock. But um, th- basically, people, the, the, the reality is that things are changing. Uh, schools need to adapt with that change and and therefore there is a reason to bring up perhaps some of this seemingly obvious um, features about the world we live in. Um, I think what's interesting to note there is that uh, mental health and well-being is becoming such a focus uh, today in schools and there's as a teacher I can I can comfortably say that it is um, it's it's a tricky conversation to have purely on the fact that a lot of these things, I think people in society have generally agreed that you learn in homes and and that you learn through family and those sorts of things. But uh, it it seems that increasingly so, there's more and more need to bring these sort of, I guess you would call them life skills into the curriculum and and really ensure that the children uh, are, are uh, you know, they're being attended to in these areas and that they have uh, skills to, to help themselves mentally and physically and emotionally. Um, obviously, there's a, a large focus on the way technology is changing the world around us, both for the good and perhaps in some people's eyes for the bad. Um, one of the alarming things in there that I won't shy away from that I think is worth talking about, it says, by some estimates, up to 40% of existing occupations will be automated over the next two decades. Um, and and the, you know that has profound implication, implications for students and schools. So, um, look, we've all been uh, exposed to these types of uh, rundowns of what the world is like today and how much it's changing. And, um, you know, it sits very well inside this larger conversation of how we should be looking at designing schools for the future. The changing student population. The student population in New South Wales schools continues to grow in size and complexity. Today, approximately 1.2 million students in kindergarten to year 12 attend 3,100 or 3,100 schools and are taught by more than 100,000 in-school teaching staff. These numbers are predicted to grow over coming decades in line with anticipated population growth. In Greater Sydney alone, the population is forecast to grow from 5.6 million to 8.4 million over the next three decades. About 75% of students currently attend schools in major cities. 
Most others attend schools in regional New South Wales and a small percentage, less than half of 1%, attend schools in remote and very remote parts of the state. Population projections anticipate a growing proportion of future students attending schools in metropolitan areas, including in Western Sydney, where the population is expected to grow by 70% by 2041. About 65% of students currently attend government schools, 20% attend Catholic schools, and 15% attend independent schools. Over the past 30 years, the percentage of students in independent schools has increased significantly, with a decline in the percentage attending government schools. There is also a very diverse range of schools within each sector, including in size and wealth. In recent years, a growing proportion of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students has, have successfully progressed through the school system and into tertiary education. The student population also has become more diverse as a result of immigration. Western Sydney is now the most diverse large urban area in Australia, with 35% of its residents born outside Australia. In 2016, one third of students in New South Wales government schools were from homes in which a language other than English was spoken. In some regions of Sydney, languages other than English are spoken in more than 40% of homes and in Parramatta, Southwest and Inner Southwest regions, the percentages increased to more than 60%. Students with disability make up approximately 20% of the New South Wales school student population with education providers being required under the Disability Discrimination Act of 1992 and the Disability Standards for Education 2005 to ensure students with disability are able to access and participate in education on the same basis as all other students. In summary, the size and diversity of today's student population mean that students come to school with very different backgrounds, starting points and learning needs. The principles of equity and inclusivity require that every student be given access to the same curriculum and the support they require to progress and succeed. But this depends on the school curriculum providing the flexibility teachers require to respond to the increasing diversity of student needs. Evolving understandings of learning. In parallel with these historical, contextual and demographic changes have been advances in the understandings of human learning and the conditions that promote successful learning. These evolving understandings have been built from experience and confirmed and refined by research into learning. Among the many things now known about learning is the crucial importance of emotional engagement. People are capable of remarkable levels of knowledge, expertise and accomplishment in areas of personal interest. Learning comes easily when it is driven by curiosity and passion. When motivated by personal goals, a search for answers or something or someone they love, people are prepared to devote thousands of hours over many years to focused, purposeful learning. This is true across a, across a wide range of endeavours, including careers, sporting activities, hobbies, personal growth and relationships. 
We also know from research that becoming an expert in a field involves more than acquiring a body of knowledge or developing finely honed skills. <clears throat> Experts have deep understandings of their areas of expertise developed over extended periods of time. They understand the principles and concepts that underpin their field and around which facts and skills can be organized and understood. They not only know what, they also understand why. Deep understandings give experts the ability to transfer and apply what they know to new situations and understanding of the context to which their knowledge can be generalized. For these reasons, what is learnt must have meaning for learners. People can learn meaningless information, but the intrinsic motivation for doing this is low, and such information is easily forgotten. Successful learning and effective recall are more likely when, is, when what is being learnt has personal meaning and when learners can see its relevance and potential applications. Learners also develop deeper understandings uh, and are better able to recall facts and procedures when they have opportunities to apply these in practical, real-world contexts. Successful learning depends on learners' learners readiness to learn. People do not learn effectively when placed in unsupportive or unwelcoming learning environments. Unfamiliar cultural contexts and norms can be significant impediments to learning. People also do not learn effectively when presented with things they already know or when they lack assumed knowledge or skills. Learners benefit most from challenges that are beyond their comfort zones but within their reach. Stretch challenges that require effort and possibly somebody else's support. Teaching, coaching, mentoring and counselling are in large measure processes of ensuring individuals are presented with well-targeted, appropriate and challenging learning opportunities. Studies of neuroplasticity have demonstrated that remarkable human capacity for learning and raised expectations of what can be learnt given motivation, effort and the right kinds and levels of support. As educators, we are much less inclined than we once were to place limits on what individuals can learn given appropriately supportive conditions. At the same time, research reveals individual learners to be at very different points in their learning. It might be imagined, for example, that the practice of grouping school students by age and teaching every student the same age-based curriculum year after year would result in students of the same age becoming increasingly similar in what they know and can do. In fact, there is no current evidence of this. In each year of school, the most advanced 10% of students are at least five to six years ahead of the least advanced 10% of students. And this appears to be unchanged across the years of school. And there is some evidence that in mathematics, students become more varied in their levels of knowledge and skill the longer they are in school. We also better understand the lifelong nature of learning. Research in neuroscience has shown the capacity of the brain to form new neurons well into the ninth decade of living, of life. Learning is an ongoing long-term process, meaning that the points individuals reach in their learning by particular ages 
often are less important than the fact that they are continuing to make good progress in their learning. It is important for learners to understand this. One of the most effective ways to promote learners' confidence in their ability to learn, to encourage a degree of self-control over learning, and to build an appreciation of the relationship between effort and success, is to enable learners to see the personal progress they are making. Regardless of how they are performing relative to age, peers or beliefs about where they should be by particular ages. These are just a few things now known about learning, but they have profound implications for the construction of effective learning environments. The kinds of learning the curriculum prioritises and promotes, the way, the, learning the way that learning opportunities are constructed and provided, and the assessments required to guide teaching and drive successful learning. So I personally really, really enjoyed reading that section, uh, Evolving Understandings of Learning. I think it speaks to uh, a notion of student-centered learning um, and, and ultimately more uh, choice for students to choose the things that they want to learn. Um, because of our latest understandings of uh, neuroplasticity and, and the neuroscience, we are understanding that of crucial importance is emotional engagement. Uh, long gone are the days where students just sit in a class and are passive passive listeners to something that they seriously just don't even care about. And this is something that I've been telling people for a while now that you can't, you can't expect students to want to learn anything if they don't care about it. Um, I think the guy's name is John Adina, uh, a, a book that he wrote on the brain uh, clearly states that the brain does not interact with or remember anything that it's not interested in. And, um, you know, inside every one of those little heads or, you know, older heads is a brain. And if that brain is not interested, it doesn't care. It will simply just forget what is being told, what, what it is being told. Um, I think another thing that's really important to, to uh, remember here is what we've learned about learning is that people can learn meaningless information. But unless there's intrinsic motiv motivation for them to learn, then information is going to be forgotten at the drop of a hat. It just won't, there will be no retention at all. And also, a student needs to be ready to learn. We obviously have a curriculum uh, and a schooling model focused on teaching students when we think they're ready or teaching students in this lockstep fashion uh, and moving ahead regardless of they're ready or not. Because, you know, we as teachers need to get through the content of this curriculum. And, um, well, it's just not effective. So that was a, that's a very, very good part of this interim report that I think, um, that I think I'm going to sit on for a long time and also draw upon when I'm speaking to others about this uh, particular report. Current policy priorities. 
Over the past two decades, there have been important changes in the policy context in which New South Wales schools and school systems work. One feature of these changes has been increased national collaboration around identified policy priorities. The Commonwealth Government has played a more prominent role in working with the states and territories to set policy directions for school education. During this period, agreed national objectives have included improving overall levels of student performance, increasing the participation and attainment levels of priority equity groups, improving school completion rates and better preparing young people for post-school destinations, reforming school funding arrangements and enhancing the effectiveness of teaching and school leadership. To deliver these reforms, three national agencies have been established. The Australian Curriculum, Assessment and Reporting Authority, ACARA, the Australian Institute for Teaching and School Leadership, AITSL, and Education Services Australia, or ESA. The work of these agencies has resulted in the development of an Australian curriculum which is now being implemented fully or in part in all states and territories, in all learning areas from kindergarten to year 10 and in English, mathematics, science, history and geography in years 11 and 12. The, induction, the introduction of a national assessment program to assess, to assess, report and monitor student performance in priority curriculum areas including literacy and numeracy accompanied by a national website to report publicly every school's performance, and the development and introduction of national standards for teaching, school leadership, and initial teacher education. Levels of student performance. A first priority for governments has been to lift levels of student performance nationally, particularly in literacy and numeracy. Concerns about students who are not mastering basic literacy and numeracy skills during the primary years led to the New South Wales Government to introduce Basic Skills Test in 1989. All other states and territories introduced similar tests during the 1990s. The National School English Literacy Survey of 1996 confirmed that a significant proportion of Australian primary children were failing to achieve minimally acceptable standards of reading and writing. From the 1990s, the improvement of literacy and numeracy levels became a key educational priority for all governments and school systems. A range of initiatives were taken to address this priority, including the establishment of national partnerships focused on raising literacy and numeracy levels, the promotion of evidence-based approaches to the teaching of reading, the introduction of National Assessment Program Literacy and Numeracy, NAPLAN, tests annually for all students in years three, five, seven and nine, replacing the earlier state and territory-based tests, the development of targeted literacy and numeracy programs and funding, the introduction of literacy coaches into many schools, and the development of the National My School Reporting website. Although NAPLAN tests conducted between 2008 and 2018 showed no significant improvement in reading levels in New South Wales secondary schools over this 10 year period, there were significant improvements in the reading levels of year three and year five students. Similar observations were made nationally. The Progress in International Reading Literacy Study, or PIRLS, PEARLS, 
also recorded significant improvements in national year four reading levels in the five years between 2011 and 2016, due mainly to improvements in Western Australia, Queensland and Victoria. The The small improvement at year four in New South Wales over these five years was not statistically significant. In numeracy, there was no significant improvement in the performance of New South Wales students at any year level between 2008 and 2018. Nationally, NAPLAN reported an improvement in the performances of Year 5 and Year 9 students, especially in Queensland and Western Australia. The trends in International Mathematics and Science Studies, or TIMS, T-I-M-S-S, found no significant change in Year 4 or Year 8 mathematics achievement levels either in New South Wales or nationally between 2007 and 2015. Although there had been a significant decline in Year 8 mathematics and sign levels in New South Wales between 2003 and 2007. That's science levels, not sign levels. From 2000, Australia participated in the OECD's Program for International Student Assessment, or PISA, an assessment of reading literacy, mathematical literacy, and scientific literacy at 15 years of age. Rather than testing basic skills, PISA assessed students' abilities to apply their knowledge and skills in reading, mathematics, and science to a a range of real-world problems. In this sense, it assessed higher-order academic skills. Australian students' performance on PISA declined significantly between 2000 and 2015, both in an absolute sense and and relative to average performance in all OECD countries. This was also the case in New South Wales, as shown in Figure 1. In the year 2000, When reading literacy was introduced as the major domain, New South Wales students performed well above the OECD average and among the highest performing countries in the world. The same was true when mathematical literacy was introduced as a major domain in 2003 and scientific literacy in 2006. By 2015, this was no longer the case. New South Wales students performed just above the OECD mean. And I'm now looking at a, uh, a bar graph, or not bar graph, or whatever it's called. Um, if you wanna have a look at it, it basically uh, mimics what was just said. But starting in 2000, New South Wales was uh, well above the OECD mean, and by 2015, for, for reading, mathematics, and science, the little line comes down and uh, sits just on average at about 2015 with the OECD mean. So, although NAPLAN indicated no change in New South Wales secondary students' basic literacy and numeracy skills from 2008, and TIMS indicated no change in Year 8 mathematics levels from 2007, PISA indicated a significant long-term and continuing decline in 15-year-olds' understanding of how to apply basic reading, mathematical, and scientific knowledge and skills in practical situations. In light of this evidence, the Australian Education Act of 2013 included a national target for Australia to be placed by 2025 in the top five highest performing countries based on the performance of school students in reading, mathematics and science. The national 
School Reform Agreement of 2018 committed the Commonwealth and all states and territories to the joint pursuit of a national goal to improve the performance of all students, including priority equity cohorts. It was agreed that progress in achieving this goal would be tracked by monitoring the proportions of students in the bottom two and top two proficiency bands slash levels of NAPLAN and PISA. Performance of equity groups. A second major priority for Commonwealth, state and territory governments over recent decades has been to improve provision for specific equity groups, including Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students, students living in regional, rural and remote locations, students with disability, and students from educationally disadvantaged backgrounds. There has been continuing evidence of lower levels of participation, retention, and academic attainment for these groups, resulting in government commitments to improve outcomes and reduce existing gaps. Some progress has been made, particularly in improving participation rates. For example, in the year 2017, New South Wales achieved achieved near-universal enrolment of four-year-old Aboriginal children in early childhood education. However, despite these high levels of enrolment, attendance rates remained low, particularly in regional, regional and remote areas of the state. At the same time, the apparent retention rate from year 10 to year 12 for Aboriginal students remained unchanged at about 50% between 2010 and 2018, compared to about 75% for non-Aboriginal students. The evidence from surveys of student attainment in literacy, numeracy, science, civics and citizenship, and ICT literacy, shows no consistent closing of the gap for any equity group. The graphs in figure two are based on longitudinal data for the earliest cohort of NAPLAN students in New South Wales. Growth and reading, growth in reading and numeracy from year three to year nine occurred on essentially parallel trajectories, parallel trajectories for Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal students, meaning that there was no closing of the gap for this cohort over these six years of their schooling. This has continued to be the case for subsequent cohorts of students despite small but significant increases for both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal students in reading in primary school. Similar conclusions have been reached from Australia's participation in international achievement studies. The OECD's Program for International Student Assessment, PISA, concluded that for Australia as a whole, the decline in reading literacy, mathematical literacy and scientific literacy occurred for all major equity groups equally. There was no evidence of gaps closing for Indigenous students, rural and remote students, or low socioeconomic background students in reading literacy between the years 2000 and 2015, in mathematical literacy between the years 2003 and 2015, or in scientific literacy between the years of 2006 and 2015. The IEA's Trends in International Mathematics and Science Studies, or TIMS, concluded that the gaps for Australian Indigenous students in mathematics and science in year four had changed little over the 20 years between 1995 and 2015. 
For students in year eight, the corresponding gaps for Indigenous students had not decreased measurably over those same 20 years. In summary, based on the National Assessment Program between 2008 and 2018, the PISA surveys between 2000 and 2015 and the TIM surveys between 1995 and 2015, a number of conclusions can be reached about recent trends in the performance of New South Wales students. Dot point one, there has been a statistically significant improvement in reading levels in primary schools since 2008, but not in numeracy. This is according to NAPLAN. Dot point two, there was an improvement in year four students' mathematics levels between 1995 and 2007, but no improvement since then, and that's according to the TIMS. Dot point three, there has been no significant improvement in either reading or numeracy levels in secondary school since 2008, and that's according to NAPLAN data. Dot point four, there has been a significant decline in 15-year-olds' ability to apply knowledge and skills in reading, mathematics and science to practical situations and problems since 2000. And that's according to PISA. Dot point five. There has been a significant decline in year eight students' levels of achievement in mathematics and science since 2003. This is again according to the TIMS. Dot point six. There is no evidence that gaps in literacy and numeracy levels have closed for any major equity group since 2008, according to NAPLAN data. And last dot point, based on national rather than state evidence, it seems likely that achievement gaps between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal students in mathematics and science in years four and eight have been unchanged since 1995, according to Tim's. These are confronting observations especially given that the improvement of literacy and numeracy levels and the closing of gaps for Indigenous and socioeconomically disadvantaged students have been amongst the highest educational priorities, policy priorities of Commonwealth, state and territory governments for the, at least three decades. Current strategies. The overarching policy priority in school education currently is to ensure that Australia has a high quality high equity school system. The National School Reform Agreement of 2018 committed the Commonwealth and all state and territory governments to the pursuit of this objective through three common national goals. The first goal, to improve academic achievement for all students, including priority equity cohorts. The second goal, to ensure all students are engaged in schooling and the third goal, to ensure students gain the skills they need to transition to further study and or work and life success. One strategy has been to set targets and timelines to improve national performance. For example, Australia to perform in the top five highest performing countries by 2025. Close gaps for equity groups, for example, halve the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander gap in year 12 participation rates between 2006 and 2020, and improve year 12 completion rates. For example, lift the year 12 or certificate three completion rate to 90% by 2020. A high priority has been given to building the professional capacity of teachers and school leaders to deliver improved teaching and learning and thus improved outcomes. At a national level, 
This priority has been pursued largely, largely through the work of the Australian Institute for Teaching and School Leadership in New South Wales. It has been pursued, pursued since 2004 through the, two, through the New South Wales Institute of Teachers, now incorporated into NESA, and through the development of the 2013 Great Teaching Inspired Learning Blueprint. A further strategy has been to provide New South Wales government schools with greater autonomy to make decisions about the most effective ways to deploy available resources to meet student needs and improve outcomes. This followed the 2012 Local Schools Local Designs reforms. The reform of school funding arrangements also has been seen as an essential strategy for raising educational standards and achieving more equitable outcomes in Australian schools. A key development was the 2011 Review of Funding for Schooling and its recommendation that schools be funded on the basis of student need rather than school type or sector. And the 2018 Review to Achieve Excellence in Australian Schools in its report Through Growth to Achievement included among its recommendations a call to governments to provide teachers and schools with greater assistance in monitoring individual student progress, diagnosing specific learning needs and implementing evidence-based teaching strategies and interventions. Curriculum Challenges This brief look at the context in which schools now operate reveals a number of challenges for the school curriculum. The history of schooling in New South Wales is a reminder that the different phases of school were introduced, introduced at different times in the response to growing student demand. This has resulted in differences in curriculum, teaching and assessment arrangements in different phases, and somewhat artificial transitions between phases. A challenge is to provide greater continuity and seamlessness of learning from preschool through the school years and into post-school destinations. History also suggests that current arrangements will change. In particular, as universal participation in the senior secondary school is approached, it is likely that greater efforts will be made to remove academic slash non-academic curriculum distinctions. It is also likely that the transition that currently looms large in the consciousness of students, schools and the wider community at the end of secondary school will assume a lower level of significance as more students continue their learning seamlessly across this transition. Selection at this point is likely to become less relevant and it might be predicted that as participation rates in tertiary education continue to grow, academic slash non-academic distinctions in that sector also will be replaced by more integrated approaches to theoretical and applied learning. All these developments invite the reimagining of the curriculum in the final years of school. Ongoing changes in Australian society are requiring schools to take on broader roles and responsibilities than the implementation of a set of syllabuses. Schools are increasingly focused on students' social and emotional development, physical and mental health and well-being, and a range of personal skills and attributes including resilience, optimism, and the ability to communicate and collaborate with others. School-wide priorities of these kinds are not adequately addressed as syllabuses and outcomes, but nevertheless 
need to be recognised as part of the total curriculum of today's school. A challenge is to provide the time and support in schools to address these broader priorities. Advances in technology are, not, are changing not only what students learn at school, but also how and where they learn, with implications for curriculum, teaching, learning and assessment. These advances also are changing fundamentally the nature of work and the knowledge, skills and attributes required in the workplace. Developments in robotics and machine learning are eliminating many existing jobs and creating others, with the most significant impact being on low-skill occupations, most of which are likely to disappear. Rather than providing job-specific skill, skills, the school curriculum increasingly will need to equip young people with deep understandings and general skills and attributes that provide a broad preparation for further learning, life and occupations yet to be created. The pressing, the pressing curriculum challenge is to set higher expectations for every student's learning. At the same time, the student population is becoming increasingly diverse. Students in schools today have more varied backgrounds, including language and cultural backgrounds, than students of the past. This trend is likely to continue. The curriculum of the future must be designed to be inclusive of all students, but it also must have the flexibility to allow teachers and schools to provide learning experiences appropriate to students' increasingly varied backgrounds, starting points and learning needs. Research into human learning highlights the importance of emotional engagement in learning, of nurturing wonder and igniting passion. Emotional engagement is unlikely when students fail to see the relevance of what they are learning or when teaching fails to connect with individuals' backgrounds and readiness. A curriculum that expects teachers to deliver large amounts of content to all students in the same time period limits teachers' ability to teach core content in depth, to explain relevance and to tailor teaching to individual needs. The challenge is to design a curriculum that promotes deep learning and provides teachers with the flexibility they require. Finally, the context for this review includes current national concerns about stagnating or declining levels of student attainment in curriculum areas such as reading, mathematics and science. Although there have been recent improvements in reading levels in New South Wales primary schools, there is no evidence of improved performances in secondary schools and evidence exists of a long-term decline in 15-year-olds' ability to apply their knowledge and skills in real-world contexts. It might be assumed that improved, students, improved student performance depends almost entirely on the effort of schools, teachers and students. However, schools, teachers and students work with the, within the constraints of a curriculum particularly if the curriculum tightly specifies what should be taught, when it should be taught, and how long should be spent teaching it. High-performing school systems recognise that the content and structure of the curriculum are important determinants of the quality of student learning. They see the curriculum as one element of an integrated learning system, all elements of which are underpinned by a set of learning principles. These other elements include, but are not limited to, assessment arrangements, professional learning for teachers, support for school leaders, and early interventions. A challenge is to ensure the future curriculum and the broader learning system of which is a part, of which it is a part, are designed around common, 
well-established principles capable of improving levels of student performance. Okay, so there you have it. That is the uh, end of uh, part one of this uh, interim report. And uh, part one was entitled The Context. We had a look at the evolution of schooling. We had a look at a changing world, the changing student population, evolving understandings of learning, current policy priorities, and finally there with a nice little summary of everything, um, the curriculum challenges. Uh, I, for one, was quite inspired listening to how upfront the, uh, re the review really was with really accepting all of these challenges and didn't, to me at least, seem like it was uh, forgetting anything important that a lot of people feel need to be spoken about. So if you are wanting to engage uh, in this conversation more, uh, you can reach me on Twitter at EduSam, that's capital E-D-U, capital S-A-M, and I will be posting, uh, hopefully, uh, a part of this um, interim report every day for the next, what have we got? There are, oh, geez Louise, there's 10 parts to this interim report, so uh, we might be looking at about a fortnight here, we'll see how we go. Um, so again, that's edu sam on twitter and if you're looking to listen to this on my podcast directly you can uh find me on all platforms and it is samar s-a-m-r uh, a thought experience all right guys until next episode thank you very much this has been the interim report verbatim with some comments um and again i'm only doing this because i know how hard it is to sit down and read a 131 page document see you next time <laughs>